This is an ABC podcast. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. This is David Rutledge. It's great to be with you once again. If you've never heard of David Lewis, and if you're not an academic philosopher, then you quite probably haven't, then get ready to discover one of the most important and distinctive thinkers of the 20th century, and one who had close connections with the world of Australian philosophy, in spite of his having been a citizen of the USA. Having said that, I should provide the disclaimer that this discovery is only going to be partial. David Lewis, who died in 2001, left behind a body of work that goes all over the place. He wrote about possible worlds, he wrote about time travel, the nature of language, the self, the mind. He's the kind of thinker that you can't possibly hope to encompass within a half-hour philosophy program like this one. So, thank goodness for today's guest, a philosophy podcaster who has recently produced a rather magnificent four-part series on David Lewis that goes into his work in a lot of detail, as well as telling the story of his life, which is an eccentric and engaging tale in itself. Barry Lamb is the host of Hi-Fi Nation. It's a podcast that mixes philosophy with storytelling. He's also Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College in upstate New York. David Lewis came from a family of two academics, but even then he was a peculiar uh, person growing up. He was a sickly child who spent a greater part of a year in bed with polio, and all he had were the books that his mother uh, provided to him, and she tutored him. The thing that he was very interested in as he was growing up was science. We're talking about the 50s now. Um, he was a very serious student of chemistry, and the sciences, and that's what he wanted to study. He left high school at 16 to go to Swarthmore to study chemistry and the other sciences and discovered philosophy there, but it wasn't until he went abroad to Oxford for a year that he discovered that they were still teaching big questions in philosophy, but the things that were happening at Oxford at the time, for people who know this part of intellectual history, is that they were very skeptical about big metaphysical questions. Oxford was in the grips of a post-war revival of Wittgenstein and stayed that way for quite some time. And Wittgenstein was quite a skeptic about whether philosophy can solve questions like whether we have free will, can solve questions like whether there are abstract objects, things that Plato was concerned with. And Lewis, I think, under the tutelage of Iris Murdoch, discovered these questions and also discovered that he felt he could answer them. (laughs) <laughs> which is a very ambitious thought to have as a 17-year-old. Um, but he felt it sincerely and thoroughly and pursued that. So after he returned from Oxford, he decided that that's what he wanted to do with his life. He had such an amazing mind. and There are many wonderful anecdotes in your podcast series, but the one that, that really jumped out at me was where um, somebody relates about how Lewis would say to you, I'm, I'm working on writing a paper, And then by way of describing that paper, he would just recite it as a complete and polished piece of work just straight from his head. It's quite extraordinary. That's right. It seemed like he was able to think in paragraphs and essays in a way that I can't. I don't know, Ken, have you had the experience of trying to think of an entire essay at once? Never once, no. Never once. You know, I think for most of the rest of us, we kind of discover what we think as we're trying to write through it. Um, But for Lewis, he would have a conversation with somebody and people might describe 
you know, one paper or two papers they're thinking about. And David Lewis, in his very distinctive style, in one of these conversations, relayed to me, said, I'm working on 11 papers and proceed to recite paragraphs from each of them. <laughs> so he wasn't just keeping a single paper in his mind. He, he would keep many. It touches on the sort of eccentric nature of the man and, and the way in which he was a little at sea in just the world of engaging with people and social interactions. And, and that was reflected in his work. Like he, he came up with a really interesting theory of how conversation works that was in some sense developed as a means of enabling him to navigate conversations. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. One of the biographical facts about David Lewis is that he found small talk and what you and I would call casual conversations very difficult to engage in. He didn't do very much of it. And if you decided to engage in a conversation with him, there would be very long pauses as he thought about how to respond. Something as simple as, how are you enjoying the weather here in Australia? He would take 15, 20 seconds to think about how to respond. And that particular character trait, according to uh, one of his good friends and students, Alan Hayek, who's at the ANU, explains some of the work that he did, at, at least can make sense of why he thought about certain topics. And one of the topics that he thought a lot about is what we would now call the pragmatics of conversation or the pragmatics of exchange of language. Um, that's how he would describe it. There's actually a science of this now. But back when David Lewis was thinking about this, there was no such science. He helped invent it. And the way that it works is, you know, he has this paper where he talks about what are the rules in conversing in particular, what are the rules of when you do or don't correct each other in a conversation? So one of the examples that I like to give is that a lot of the times we use inexact times to respond to people when they say, what time is it? And you say, oh, it's half past eight. When it's in fact 8.32 or 8.28 or something to that effect. And one of Lewis's most famous papers talked about how there are all these rules in a conversation that people need to be aware of, one of which is, are you in a precise context or an imprecise context? That's just one example. And if you're in an imprecise context, you're allowed to state the time as plus or minus three or four minutes, I would imagine, maybe even five. But if you're in an exact context, you have to say the exact time, maybe not to the second, but to the minute. And these are things we kind of know <laughs> as ordinary people walking through life, making small talk with people. And this happens with a lot of words. And what he pointed out in that paper is that besides precise or imprecise context, there's just a list of rules for all of these different words that people have to keep track of. But the inside of that paper was there's one overarching rule that rules all the other rules of a conversation, which is that Many times, rather than correct people when they seem to be saying something that appears to be factually incorrect, instead, rather than correcting people, you should just change the rules in the conversation to make it so that what they're saying is true. And the example that I like to use is um, generally on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, we're in a very precise context when we're talking about time. 
at 12.01 a.m., you say, today is a new day. And that's not usually true. You know, usually if, you know, we're walking along on the streets having a good time and it's 12.02 and someone says, did you have a good time today? They meant the previous day. You know, 12.02 doesn't get to count as today in an ordinary conversation. But on New Year's Day, it does. So that's a precise context. But then suppose you're at a New Year's Day party and it's 12.03, everybody's tired and they say, I'm going to bed, I'll see you tomorrow. All of a sudden, (laughs) tomorrow actually means New Year's Day, meaning later that day, right? And this is something that I think you and I grasp very naturally. Well, we understand that. But it took David Lewis a lot of thinking and the formulation of this rule, which he called the rule of accommodation, um, to understand that this is how you converse. Well, he had a specific philosophical goal, and that was to come up with a complete theory of the universe that tied everything together. And in the search for such a theory, he came up with what's come to be known as concrete modal realism, although I believe he ended up having reservations about that label, but we'll, we'll go with it. Very simply put, modal realism is a theory of possible worlds. Can you give me a, a thumbnail sketch of how it works? David Lewis's most famous view, you might call most infamous view, is that everything that's possible is a reality somewhere. Um, So every possible world exists. So another way of putting that is there's the way the world actually is, but it's possible that here in the U.S. Trump won the election in 2020. It's possible that Bernie Sanders did, although that's a more distant possibility. And it's also possible that somebody else did, some dark horse, for every possibility, and there are infinite number of possibilities. David Lewis thought there's actually a world in existence that realizes that possibility. So there are infinite number of other worlds, some similar to this one and some very different from this one. The thing I I always think about when I encounter this kind of theory is... The, the sorts of examples that we tend to go to are, right, a, a world where Donald Trump lost the 2016 election, a world where Germany won the Second World War. But does it come right down to, you know, there's a world where instead of me scratching my left eyebrow, as I just did then, I scratch my right eyebrow, and, and then another world where I scratch my nose, and, and then another world where I don't scratch anything. That These are all concretely existing worlds somewhere out there, ad infinitum. Is is that what we're dealing with? That is what we're dealing with. Every little possibility is realized in another possible world. Every big possibility is. And, you know, it's even the case that all these little possibilities realized by themselves infinitely many. There are infinite number of worlds where you scratch your left eyebrow. Mm. Or scratch it hard or scratch it lightly or scratch it with two fingers or three fingers. It, it, it gets really sort of head spinning. I mean, quantum mechanics has a, a many worlds thesis where it, it's where every possible outcome of a quantum event is realized in its own universe, or I think it's in, in its own branch of the multiverse. So Schrodinger's cat is is alive in one world and dead in another. Is, is this similar to David Lewis's theory? The ideas are very similar, but the idea of a quantum world, quantum possible world, is different from a Lewis possible world in the following way. Um, Quantum worlds have a causal link or history that's connected to our world. So Schrodinger's cat starts off uh, just the cat in our world put into a box. And later on, when there are two different possible worlds, there's a split, one in which the cat's alive and one in which the cat's dead. 
in those two worlds, they're still linked in their history to this particular world. So in that way, um, quantum worlds are linked to each other. Lewis's possible worlds are completely spatio-temporally and causally distinct. There's no way to travel to a different possible world and be in a different possible world for Lewis. If you can travel to it into the future or in the past or anywhere in, in space, then it's the same world. So all of these quantum worlds, if they exist, would be in the same possible world for Lewis. And then there are still even more possible worlds outside of that. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week, Barry Lamb. Barry is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College in New York. He's also host of the philosophy podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, which recently ran a four-part series on David Lewis. And that's who we're talking about today. David Lewis was hugely influential in Australia, and from 1971, he spent a lot of time here. What's the story there? How did he come to have this connection with Australia and with the Australian philosophy community? Uh, it's a wonderful story. Uh, the first part of the story is that um, very prominent philosopher Jack Smart, JJC Smart, visited Harvard in 19, I want to say 1964-65, and taught a seminar where David Lewis attended as a graduate student and a young undergraduate named Stephanie, Steffi, would become David's eventual wife. She attended that seminar and in fact, on the basis of meeting David in that seminar, left her boyfriend and uh, started dating David and they eventually got married. So Jack Smart was the teacher of the seminar that David and Steffi Lewis met in. When Smart finished that seminar, he went back to Australia in the mid to late 60s, and started talking about Lewis to people, you know, just uh, within his own department and others saying, there is this young graduate student and he's doing incredible things, really impressed smart, David. So there was a lot of buzz about Lewis before he ever visited. And fast forward to 1968 and David Armstrong, another famous Australian philosopher, gave a talk at UC Irvine David Lewis was teaching at UCLA, which is about 40 minutes up the road, and they initiated contact. You know, David Lewis was unable to make that talk, but David Armstrong invited both the Lewises to Australia later that summer, the northern summer, uh, the southern winter. And the way I like to think about it is, you know, when Lewis arrives in Australia, you know, it's the philosophical of equiv equivalent to the Beatles coming to America. Like, I mean, <laughs> right. It's an exaggeration. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't anything like that. But, you know, there was already a lot of buzz about him. And starting, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, Australian philosophers just responded to his philosophy. And it kept going. It was generations. It wasn't just the generation of David Armstrong. It was their students. It was undergraduates. And he responded to the Australian culture. He responded to Aussie rules football. <laughs> he responded to the wildlife. He loved the infrastructure. He loved taking trains in Australia. And he and Steffi loved it so much being there. And doesn't hurt that the continent responded so positively to his philosophy that he just did his best philosophy in Australia amongst colleagues that were incredibly welcoming 
Um, he interacted the most with his Australian colleagues. And, you know, this other story that I tell very briefly, but I can tell here to your audience, is that he loved publishing in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy. <laughs> it's the journal that he published most of his papers in. And I think somebody very recently did a an analysis of the prominence and selectability of journals. And, you know, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy is consistently in the top five ranked philosophy journals in the world. And this particular person who did the analysis said, you can trace it completely due to the fact that David Lewis liked to publish there and people who were responding to his articles there. And so the mark that he made on that continent is, and the, and the response is, it's just so hard to measure all of my Australian colleagues got into philosophy after reading David Lewis. It's, it's just remarkable. That's really interesting. And this is something that I don't really, you know, weirdly, I don't really have much of a sense of this, but would you say that there is a, a sort of a flavor or a, a tenor to Australian philosophy itself, like today, that can be traced back to Lewis? I think so. I definitely do. And it's not just Lewis. It was all of the Australian philosophers who were working with him, around him, David Armstrong, Jack Smart, Frank Jackson, a lot of the people who are at uh, that are still there or have passed away because if they were the um, other generation. But, you know, the kind of philosophy that the philosophers of the uh, mid to late 20th century were interested in in Australia coincided with the kind of philosophy that David Lewis was doing. And that means that the, it was being taught to undergraduates. And that means that the grad, undergraduates were applying to become graduate students and then future professors from Australia we're doing a lot of Lewisian or Lewis-inspired philosophy. Well, Barry, I, I want to finish by Dutch, uh, talking a little bit about David Lewis's religious views. He, uh, because the, these, as far as I understand, developed as a sort of a logical outworking of his modal realism. And he described himself as a polytheistic atheist. What, what, what's that? It's um, it's a logical consequence of his view about there being many worlds, which is that every possible god or flavor of gods that is possible exists in some world. <laughs> so if you thought that the ancient Greek myths are fully consistent stories without contradictions in them, then they're actually happening somewhere in some possible world. And that means that Zeus exists. Similarly with the Indian religions or the Abrahamic religions. To be a polytheistic atheist is to think that there are other gods that exist in other worlds that are consistent with the existence of those gods. To be an atheist is just to think that in our universe, it's consistent with what you find here, the facts that you see, that there is no such God. <laughs> so he was an atheist about our world. He didn't think our world had any God. And that was on the basis of observations. But, you know, if the observations turned out differently, um, maybe there would be a God. And they definitely turn out differently in other possible worlds. So he's polytheistic about other gods in other worlds. It's a nice each way bet. But of course, when it came to the ethical side of religion, he, he was more inclined to lay his cards on the table. And at the end of his life, he was thinking about evil and Christianity. Um, I, I know that before he died, he was working on a paper on the existence of God that raised the question of whether or not there was something wrong with people who worshipped the Christian God. Can you tell me about that 
that work and its treatment of, of evil and the infectious nature of evil. Right. What troubled Lewis towards the end of his life about the Christian God was that there was this conception of hell and that non-believers, no matter how virtuous on earth, would be sent to hell. And hell is described in Christian theology as an eternity of the worst possible torment that you can inflict on a human being. And even in this regular world, whatever your crime, an eternity of torment is a disproportionate, <laughs> to say it mildly, punishment, right? And what bothered David Lewis about Christianity was that hell was presented as a punishment for non-believers, no matter how virtuous otherwise they would be. Now, you know, this is something that I think theologians have thought about for a while now. But one of the things that concerned David Lewis when he was thinking about this question was, how is he to think of the moral characters of people who not only permit but worship a God that can be so unforgiving to non-believers? If somebody had even so much as befriended or admired somebody on earth who was as unforgiving and as inflicting of torment on others, you would not hesitate for a second in not being such a person's friend and not, uh, you know, interacting with them and so forth. But, you know, there were a lot of Christian philosophers that he accepted in his circles and interacted with and exchanged papers with. So by the end of his life, he was questioning that. Like, isn't it true that if somebody worshipped such a God that I think is deeply unjust, it says something about my moral characters that, that I'm accepting of them? And that kind of permeates <laughs> along the line to people who would befriend you. If you're friends with the person who is accepting and worshipping of a tormentor, then people shouldn't be your friend either. So that's what I mean by infectiousness. The kind of evils that he saw that coming from the Christian God kind of permeated down to his believers, friends of his believers, friends of friends of his believers, and so forth. Well, you ask an interesting question at the end of your podcast series, which is the question of whether the legacy of a philosopher is measured by the number of adherents or defenders of their views. And we have touched on this, but just to wrap things up, he was and remains a very controversial philosopher. His ideas are maybe as often rejected as they are embraced. How does that affect his legacy, do you think? Uh, I don't think it affects his legacy within academic philosophy all that much. So I, it's hard to know how many people adhere to David Lewis's tenets, you know, substantive views. But that's also true of a lot of every other philosopher as well. Um, not a lot of people are modal realists and not a lot of people accept all of the metaphysical consequences of modal realism. So that's true. But he's still amongst the top cited philosophers um, and his technical work in language in the science of meaning, formal semantics, pragmatics, the study of the conventions of language, work goes on there. And instead of looking at David Lewis's legacy as people who adhere to tenets, but rather the, the fields of research that he started and that still continue, 
it's quite sound. You know, formal semantics and pragmatics in, in the study of language and linguistics is a rich and continuing field. He made a lot of advances in the study of probability and that has a lot of applications today in the era of big data. And the other thing that I think his legacy uh, that's underappreciated that I hoped to convey in the podcast is that his methodology for doing philosophy, I think that probably has had the widest adoption in my field, even if the actual tenets of his beliefs don't. The methodology was, uh, and it's, it might not sound ambitious, but nothing in philosophy is ever decisive. You can't give a decisive refutation or a decisive presentation of a philosophical view. And this is big tradition in the West. You know, Hume was overturning centuries of, of dogma and Descartes was overturning centuries of dogma, right? Everybody thought that they were undermining a previous system. The way David Lewis thought about it is that's not how you do philosophy. You do philosophy by simply presenting a view and consider all of the pluses and all of the minuses of it. So if you there's an objection from somebody and you don't know how to respond, that's a minus. And if it makes sense of the nature of the self, that's a plus, right? And the way philosophy makes progress is you take the view that has the most pluses and the fewest minuses. That methodology kind of permeated philosophy ever since Lewis. And so now a lot of people do think that way, that to do good philosophy is to exhibit theories and do a cost-benefit <laughs> for the philosophy. And that's a controversial methodology. I don't want to say that, you know, that's correct. You know, some people think that's got to be correct. It has to be the way it is. And some people think that this methodology has has done a lot of bad for philosophical thinking. But I do think as a um, legacy, it's had the widest adoption in the field. It's probably worth mentioning too, and I'll just put this out there for any listeners who are interested in exploring David Lewis, is that his work has a wonderful sort of freewheeling style. You know, he writes about his cats and that there's a, a great sense of lively curiosity in his work. I wonder if you find it that way too. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily easy to read, but it is very engaging, I find. Yeah, he's a very playful writer. He's not an easy read because his philosophy can go from casual and entertaining to technical very quickly because yeah. he's writing for philosophers who are technical. But he always starts with a playful style and playful imaginative examples. And his papers are filled with jokes. Um, he took a lot of joy in thinking about philosophy. And that shows in his writing. Yeah. Well, joy in philosophy, I think um, we, <laughs> we can always use more of that. Um, and this has, been, uh, this has been a joyful conversation, Barry. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much, David. And Barry Lamb is Associate Professor in Philosophy at Vassar College in New York. He's also the host of Hi-Fi Nation, a podcast that brings philosophy together with storytelling. And as I mentioned earlier, Barry recently produced a four-part series on David Lewis, which is well worth your time. I'd say the same about Hi-Fi Nation in general. It's into its fifth season, and I would say a must-listen. We'll put details on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the Radio National website or the ABC Listen app. And that's it from me, David Rutledge, for another week. You can find me on Twitter at David P Zone. Thanks for your company. <laughs>